In today's episode, we open our Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. Three months the Israelites have journeyed, and now they find themselves at the foot of Mount Sinai, also known as Mount Horeb, where God first appeared to Moses in the burning bush. Now, God intends to make a covenant with the people, but there are preparations to be made, people to be consecrated, and God gives a warning that they must not come too close. Good morning. Today is Monday, December 5th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Our program is brought to you by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Visit them at lhfmissions.org. This morning, as we open up our Bibles to Exodus 19, my guest is the Reverend James Stefanik, pastor of Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Marshall, Minnesota. Pastor Stefanik, welcome to Thy Strong Word. Thank you for having me. So, you know, before we dive into the text, and it is a great one, right? We have Moses up on Mount Sinai. We're getting ready to get the Ten Commandments, even though that'll be tomorrow's episode. Before we dive in, tell us a little bit about what God's doing through you and through your congregation. Sure. So I, I serve in Marshall, Minnesota, which I like to talk about as the metropolis of Southwest Minnesota. It is not that, but we have a, a wonderful town that we are a part of. Good Shepherd has been around for almost 60 years now. It was planted by the Minnesota South District as a site for campus ministry. There was a college that was being built at the time and that stands there today, Southwest Minnesota State University. So we have the joy of reaching out to some uh, college students and feed the, the people of God his good gifts and word and sacrament. Typically, my guests come in either through phone or through the internet, but today I'm privileged to have you right in front of me, and that's because we are in the same circuit. Well, we're, we are recording today because we just got done with a Winkle or a, a circuit pastor's meeting. The listeners don't know this, but you are a whiz at biblical languages, at least the Greek for sure. I'm not sure how you are on the Hebrew. I, I well, thank you for that. That's kind of you to say. I I enjoy dabbling with the, the languages and make sure I make that a, a regular part of my life in the words. And so I, I wouldn't say I'm a whiz. That's, that's, going, <laughs> that's going a little, uh, a bit too far, but it's something that I believe it's important to work at it. And, and yeah. so I take the time to do that. Well, I'll tell you what, let's get to the main attraction here. And that is going to be Exodus chapter 19. I'm going to read this pretty much in the divisions that the ESV breaks it down into, but you can then take us verse by verse or however you want as we explore it. So Exodus 19, beginning with the first verse in the ESV. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell to the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And that ends with verse 6. 
wow, so this is some familiar language to Christians. We have a kingdom of priests, and we think of the priesthood of all believers. We think of a treasured possessions and covenants. You know, those those types of ideas started way back here in Sinai. Lead us in a little bit. You know, what's been going on, and, and where where is Moses taking us in terms of the narrative? All right, so... At the, of course, at the beginning of Exodus, you have the, the call of Moses and then his hesitation to take that call. Eventually, the Lord provides him Aaron to be his spokesman. They go to Pharaoh, and as they go to Pharaoh to declare the Lord's words, let my people go, there's opportunity for the king of Egypt hear the word of the Lord, but, but he does not do that. Instead, he in his hardness of heart, uh, continues to refuse. Plagues come, Pharaoh still is hardened. Eventually, we get to the the Passover, the 10th and final plague, the the death of the firstborn. Israel is brought to the, to the, the Red Sea. And as they're at the Red Sea, there's that marvelous part where the people of God look and they see the Egyptian army coming after them. And as they're looking, they're thinking, oh, it would have been better for us to stay in Egypt. We have nowhere to go, and now the Egyptians are going to to come and kill us. And Moses tells them to watch and see the salvation that the Lord will accomplish for them. And that's exactly what happens. The people do nothing. The Lord parts the Red Sea. The, The children of Israel walk through, and then the waters consume the Egyptians. And that really is a beautiful image because I think we often talk about the people of Israel in the desert and we think, well, they've been redeemed from slavery and we think God's leading them to the promised land. But how often do we remember their groanings and their moanings? And, you know, and even Moses has to say things like, hey, it's not me. You're mad at God. But at the same time, if you, just as you described it, if you see this amazing army coming after you and you already know the power of the Egyptians, it's pretty normal for you to say, maybe we shouldn't have done this. Right, right. Maybe, maybe I made the mistake. But that is it, right? You just wait and, and see what God's going to do in his good timing. And that's something we could all learn for sure. That, yeah, that's exactly right. It's, yeah, it's a beautiful text that proclaims the, the purity of the gospel to us. And in the midst of that, it reminds us that some of these people throughout the Bible, all of the heroes of faith that we hold before us were sinners. They, they all struggled. They, they endured the sorrows, the pains, the trials and tribulations of this life. And as they did that, sometimes they didn't react in the best way. And yet, in spite of them, the Lord still does his work. And so after they're brought out of the Red Sea, you, you'd think, well, now, surely now the people have got it, right? If they, they, they got the 10 plagues, you'd think with, with all of that, seeing the mighty workings of God and finally being free, redeemed out of slavery, that now, now they're not going to complain, they're not going to groan, they're not going to turn their eye back to Egypt, but there's a little bit of Lot's wife in, in everyone longing for what once was. Yeah, the, the flesh pots of Egypt, right? That's they right. long for that. That's right. Yeah, and it's and it's something that I tell my people when I do Bible studies, and right now I'm still going, much to their chagrin, I think, still going through Genesis at my congregation. But when we see the patriarchs of old, when we see heroes of the faith, 
it, it's good to every now and then take some time and shake the gold off the icon and say, this is a real person with real struggles and made real mistakes. And the reason why we admire these men and women is because not of anything within themselves, but because of what God did through them or God allowed them to accomplish. And so even if Moses and Abraham or Jacob and Isaac, and even if all these folks made these terrible mistakes, which are recorded in history forever, thankfully ours aren't, we still hold them up and we still paint over them with gold and hang them on our walls because it reminds us of the amazing things that God does through poor, miserable sinners. Yeah. So we get now into 19, though, and by this time, they've made their way to Sinai. And this is not the ultimate destination, but it's, it's definitely a, a big stop on the route, right? It is. Yeah. So we're, we're headed towards the promised land. And here in 19, we're starting a portion in the book of Exodus that's known as the book of the covenant. It, it's probably we're starting to get into that part in Exodus that if you're reading straight through the Bible, people are, are, are go, things are going well. I mean, Genesis is is a, a, a narrative account. It's story after story, and, and we tend to do better following along with those. And even up to, to this point in Exodus, we feel are pretty good, got a lot of momentum going. But through 19 and, and into 20, because of the familiarity with the, the Ten Commandments, we are feeling like we can keep going. But then we start getting some specific laws in that Book of the Covenant in chapter 21 and 22 that we're wondering how exactly do these apply to us, which you'll take up in future shows. Yeah, we feel bad for that guy, right? When we get to the laws about slaves in chapter 21. But you know, they're important too, just to give you guys at home, uh, you know, a, a peek ahead. The reason why it's important that we understand these laws, even if they are ceremonial or civil, some of them are for a time, some of them are morally eternal, and we'll, we'll get into all that, folks. But it's important because a lot of the units of our faith will read with undiscerning eyes the scriptures and use them against us as fodder. So, yes, it's difficult to trudge through sometimes the, the, the Torah. It's important that we do. And, yeah, so I think that's a good point. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely worth the effort. The, the Lord thought it important to put it down in his word. And therefore, it's good for us to meditate on, on what he has handed down to us. So here, as we get to Mount Sinai, one of the things that we can first think about and consider in terms of the, the context of the, the, the region is that this is the, the ancient Near East and tends play an important role. Certainly, we know that, that mounds play an important role in scripture, and we can talk about that a little bit. But within the context of the ancient Near East, and their Babylonian or Canaanite religions, I should say, within those religions, you have these examples of mountains and, and different events taking place on mountains. The mountains, mountains are usually a meeting place of the gods. It's where battles take place. There's a stream of water that, that flows down from the mountain. There are these great mighty works and wonders. And into that ancient Near Eastern context comes the Lord himself, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to meet with Moses on a mountain. And you see some of those same kinds of events that are reflected in ancient Near Eastern religions in the scriptures, specifically here in, in the book of Exodus. However, there's a lot that's different. And the biggest thing that's different is that when 
the Lord comes to meet his people. He comes to meet his people for their benefit. He comes to bring great blessings to them. And, and in 19, what he's doing is he's beginning to show them the shape and the order of their life. What is their life supposed to look like? So in, in verses 5 and 6, we heard that if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples. If we're not paying attention to what has transpired before this, we might walk away thinking that the Lord somehow made a, a, a false distinction here between law and gospel. That he's, he's telling the people, if you do this, if you fulfill the law, if you do these great works, then after that, I'll make you my people. But I'd like to, to take a, a few minutes to, to back up and to see the bigger picture, both within the framework of the Old Testament and then also within the book of Exodus to see how, what the, what the setting is for this. Yeah, let's do that because that is certainly something that people are going to get this idea of, you know, you're my treasured possession if and only if you do these things. And the if would certainly indicate that God doesn't force anybody to do his will, which is something that, you know, sometimes we wish that maybe he would, even for ourselves as we struggle with our own sins. Like, Lord, just can't you just make me do the right things? But yeah, there has to be something deeper here because I do believe a lot of people see it as so long as I am keeping God's law, God's happy. And the moment I'm not keeping God's law, I'm outside of his grace. Mm -hmm. I've heard once uh, from a person and they were just sort of speaking half joking, but it, it reveals something. They said, well, it seems like the best time to die would be choking on the host at communion. Because in that moment, you're forgiven and you don't have any chances to, to sin anymore Sure. before you die. But that's a misunderstanding of what the, what the grace and, 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 and righteousness that is ours through Christ is all about. So yeah, take us into this and let's, let's make a Moses a, a good Lutheran. We don't, want him, we don't want him misusing law and gospel. Right. Yeah, and, and carry on that point, too. If, if you operate within that framework, too, you can kind of see how it is that people walk away from the Old Testament thinking that in the Old Testament, God is one kind of God, this angry judge. And then in the New Testament, you come along and you have Jesus, and Jesus is all about love. So if it, it, it carries out in the, the narrative, at least this, this idea of if you, you do the law, and then you get the gospel as a result of doing the law by, we'll see when later the children of Israel very clearly don't keep the law, the Lord brings the Assyrians to wallop them. And then he sends the Babylonians 150 or 40 years later to, to take them out and, and to bring in, to put the people of God into exile. But... There is a, a, a broader framework for this Sinaitic covenant. So first, let's think about the four major covenants that we find in the Old Testament. The first one comes to us in Genesis chapter 9. It's the Noahic covenant. In the Noahic covenant, the Lord sends a rainbow. He sends a bow in the sky and he, he, puts his, he attaches his word to that sign in the sky and says through that word that he will never again send a flood 
to destroy the whole earth. And what's amazing about that covenant, and we'll see this even more so, I think, when we get to the, the Abrahamic covenant, is that the Lord promises something. He promises that he will do something in spite of what man does. There is nothing, in other words, that man can do that will make God go back on his word. He will fulfill what he has said. Right? We have given, or the, 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 the people of the earth, since the time of the flood, have given the Lord ample opportunity to send another flood and destroy the whole earth. And yet, he maintains his promise. And that kind of promise is unique. There's, we, in terms of different kinds of covenants, we can think of a, a covenant that, that is often made between an employer and, em, and an employee. The employer is the greater one, the one who has more authority. And so he asks the employee to fulfill certain obligations. The idea is that when the employee fulfills those obligations in return, he gets what is properly his. He gets his wages, he gets some insurance, coverage, and whatever else may come. If he violates that contract, though, then he risks losing his job. The employer, if he makes the contract and he doesn't follow through with his word, he can get in trouble too because he signed a legal document. So you have, you, oftentimes covenants are thought of as a thing either between equals or something from the greater to the lesser, the lesser to the greater, that requires some sort of obligation of both. But the unique thing about the covenant that the Lord makes it with Noah and then with Abraham is that it's from God to, well, in the case of the Noahic covenant, to the world, and in the case of Abraham, it's to Abraham specifically with implications for the world. But he does this without requiring anything of the other. Is there, and I, I, you just said it was unique, but I'm going to ask the question anyway. You know, is there anything even close to this one-sided covenant idea? Because we've heard this, you know, this is a one-sided covenant. God keeps his word even when we fail. Although that doesn't give us permission to break the covenant, Correct. I think that's the the other thing. But I, I just I, I can't think of anything. But I, yeah, it is unique in that sense. But it does send my mind racing a little bit to say, is there anything close? The, not that I'm aware of. There there might be something in maybe the closest equivalent that comes to mind right now would be marriage, perhaps. But I, I'm just kind of flying off the cuff right yeah, now. Yeah, no, I understand. In that. In that, uh, when I, when I promised, when I married my wife, I made certain promises to her, and the promises that were made were, you know, for better, for worse, and richer, for poor, and sickness, and in health, till death us do part. Another way to say the those marriage vows, which are all law, mm -hmm. is no matter what you do, right, I will fulfill my obligation to you. I you, will you fulfill my responsibility. is independent of her keeping her Precisely. Side. Or at least that's how it's supposed to be. Precisely. And well, no wonder then the marriage is a reflection of God's relationship with us. Exactly. <laughs> that's exactly right. Exactly. All right. Yeah. Well, continue then. Yeah. I just thought that was interesting. So then we have the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis chapter 15. Abraham has this vision. That's that great chapter two, where the Lord, where we're told Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. And in this vision that Abraham has, 
he is told by the Lord to cut some animals in half, prepare some animals, cut them in half. A deep sleep comes upon him. And then the Lord himself passes through between the animals that are split in half and promises to Abraham that his descendants will come into the land. Abraham struggling with whether or not this promise that God made back in Genesis 12 is, is going to come true. Will Abraham really have a descendant? Will a son be born to him as the years go by? It gets a little more difficult to believe the Lord is going to keep that word. The Lord here says, I will do this, I, I promise, and may it be to me, may it be to me, just like these animals are cut in half, may it be to me if I, if I fail to keep my word. While the Lord is busy doing his work, making his promise, Abraham is sleeping. He's doing nothing. When we get to, let me skip ahead then and talk about the other major covenant that comes after Sinai. That's in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, we have the Davidic covenant. David wants to build a house for the Lord, and the Lord tells him, that's not something you're going to do, that's going to be for your son. But the Lord does promise to David an everlasting kingdom. And David tries extremely hard to screw that up. <laughs> that's true. But because the Lord is faithful to his word, David remains in the line of the Messiah. So then, Sinai comes somewhat in the, the middle of these, and especially as we're thinking about the Abrahamic covenant, we can start to understand that this Sinaitic covenant is under the umbrella, we could say, of the, the Abrahamic covenant, or something, some language you kind of mentioned earlier, it's under the umbrella of grace. The narrative of Exodus plays this out. For example, in Exodus chapter 2, verse 24, we hear this. God heard their groaning, that is the groaning of the people of Israel, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. To say that God remembered his covenant is not to say that he forgot it. Right, right. But it's to say that he brought it to the forefront of his mind, that he's now going to act on yeah. his covenant. And, and he does. He tells Moses, when Moses is at the burning bush, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. This is a, a good, the possessive words matter. When the Lord says, my people, that's a, that's a gospel phrase there. When, in the midst of their rebellion, or in response to their rebellion, he says, this people, or he tells Moses, your people, that, that's not good news. <laughs> they're, they're on the wrong side there. They've turned to, to idolatry. So the Lord first, he sees the affliction of, of the people of Israel. He refers to them in the call of Moses as my people. And then it's in Exodus 4, verse 22, the Lord says to Moses, Israel is my firstborn son. And again, it's in, oh, it's in chapter 6. And I want to say it's like verses 5 to, to 6. The Lord says, 
Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. That is, again, the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And then verse 7 too, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. The Lord, in other words, clearly establishes that the children of Israel are his people. And, and that, then, frames how we can understand this covenant at Sinai and the giving of the Ten Commandments in the next chapter, which start with the words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery in Egypt. Now, therefore, as a result of that, you shall have no other gods. Right, right. Right. So first, the Lord identifies Israel as his people. He summons them as his people. He calls them as his people. He redeems them. He saves them. He brings salvation. They, they just sit back and watch. And then he tells them, this is what it means to live like my right. people. So here's the place that the law rightly has for, for you. Here's how I want you to live a good, godly, ordered life in response to the calling you have as my own dear treasured possession. Well, when he does that, he tells Moses that, you know, these are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. In the following few verses, which I want to get in before the break, it says, starting with verse 7 through 9, Moses came and he called the elders of the people and he set before them all of these words that Yahweh had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that Yahweh has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord to Yahweh. And Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. So we're going to pick up with the following verses when we get back from the break. Moses did go on to tell the people those words, but they they respond with just the zealousness, I think, that comes from, say, a new believer. I see mm -hmm. that in the church. You have someone who's just what we used to call down south, on fire for the Lord. <laughs> and that zealousness will eventually mature into faithfulness. But at the beginning, it's like, yeah, I'm on fire. I'll do whatever you want. We're going to do everything right. And, of course, they almost immediately mess things up, or at least you know, as you said of David, they try to they try to do things wrong from the get go. So as we head into the break, bring that idea back into the conversation, right? So now all the people are saying together, "We'll do everything the Lord has commanded us." Sure. So they they have this calling to be a holy people, right? A kingdom of priests. So as receivers of the Lord's holiness, they are then to be mediators of the holiness of God. They're, they're declared to be a holy people, and now they're, they have this holy calling, this holy calling to the nations, so that as the children of Israel live the distinct life that they have been called to live, their light shines to the nations, and the nations are drawn into Israel 
when the the peoples of of around them who surround them the peoples who 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 worship other gods the idols when they see the children of Israel the design by God is for them to say you are distinct there's something different about you there's something good about you can you tell me more about why you do this why do you live in such a way and then there's opportunity to say yes we do this because the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is our God, and let me tell you all about he has done. Now, there is some sense of some foolishness, some foolhardiness <laughs> that they have in supposing that they will do all that the Lord has done. But the Lord, he, he recognizes this, and so what does he do? He comes down in a thick cloud, or he's going to come down in a thick cloud, He's going to appear to Moses only, and he's doing this great sign for the people that they might know, that it might be visible, that it might not just be something they hear with their ears, but it's something that they see with their eyes, as if they haven't seen enough already, that they might see with their eyes the great and mighty workings of God. And so then, when Moses comes down off the mount and he tells them eventually the words, of the book of the covenant, the idea is that because the Lord has attached his word to some kind of physical means, namely to the thick cloud, the promise that he's going to be, he's in that cloud as he was earlier in the book of Exodus, leading the, the people of Israel in a pillar of cloud by day, that this people who's been baptized are going to, baptize through the Red Sea, they are going to hear, at least have ears that are more inclined towards uh, the word of uh, Moses. So they're not being disingenuous. They're eager to do what the I, Lord has said. I absolutely believe so. Yeah. Right, right. And I'll, tell you, I'll tell you what, we're up against a break. So let's take just a few moments. And folks, don't go anywhere. Pastor Stefanik and I will continue our discussion of Exodus 19 when we return. We'll see you on the other side. This is the voice of a mother in the faraway country of Georgia, reading to her six-month-old son about Jesus from a Bible storybook written in the Georgian language. The child's Bible was given to her by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, and the Holy Spirit is working powerfully through your support of LHF to make events like these happen every day. Help another family learn of the Savior. Learn how at lhfmissions.org. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend James Stefanik, pastor of Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Marshall, Minnesota. Folks, before we get back to our text, I want to remind you that I love hearing from you, and I answer every email I receive. So send me your questions or comments to pastorboo at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail.com. 
Now, Pastor Stefanik, before the break, we were just finishing up with verse 9. And I shouldn't say finishing up. You know, we talked off the air, and, you know, there's so much that we could dig into and so much to bring out. It's hard to fit it in in an hour. But we do want to make our way through the chapter. But, yeah, let's let's tie these together before we read our next verses. Right. So I think it would be good to at least say something about the fact that this people— the people of Israel are called a kingdom of priests. And what it means for us when we hear in 1 Peter chapter 2 that we are the, the priesthood of believer, the priesthood of the baptized. And to, to do that, we can simply say that the Lord himself, because he has called us too by faith, to be a holy people because he has made us so, this chosen race. We stand as the, as the Lord's treasured possession. Now the question might be for us, as it was for the children of Israel, what are we going to do with this treasure that we have been given? Are we going to squander it? Are we going to waste it away? Are we going to spend it on on? golden calves that are going to be built in our midst so that we can worship? Or are we going to remember what we have said, basically remember our our confirmation vows, right? That we will do what the Lord has said and not turn to idolatry. And this is, this is the big thing about the Sinaitic covenant. The way you break the Sinaitic covenant is by, by being an idolater. By, you know, being an idolater means worshiping false gods, but we don't need to just think about little statues that are, are put up here and, and there. False gods are, are whatever we fear, love, and trust in that is not the true God. The human heart is quite the manufacturer of false gods, it has been said, but in order to to be faithful to the Lord and to not turn aside from his ways. It is good for us to remember that he has declared us to be his treasured possession. And, as we'll talk about here in the second half of the chapter, that he is the holy God. And there is something to be fearful of regarding that Lord. We very much lost the fear of the Lord, I think, in its yeah. intentional in an intentional way, because people want to soften the idea that God's the creator of the universe. He's the one keeping his end of the covenant. We are his possession, a language that people also don't like. And, you know, we, we, we sort of reduce it down to, well, it just means in awe of. And I certainly that's an element, but I, I don't think that's a complete picture of our relationship before God. It's not that it's hostile, but it's just, it's real that he's outside of time and space and creation and we aren't. Right, right. Yeah, there's that, that marvelous verse in John 18 when the, the soldiers come to arrest Jesus and they ask him if he's the Christ and he says, I am he. And they all bow down. <laughs> they all fall down before him. And there we get this picture of what is going to come at the end of time when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that, that Jesus is Lord. There's, there is a certain distinctiveness of God. He is holy other. He is separate from us. He's the creator and we are his creatures. The marvelous thing, though, the amazing thing that happens is that God 
doesn't come down into our midst to consume us so that we would die eternally. Instead, he comes to us and, and calls us holy. He takes, he takes us sinners and he bespeaks us righteous. When, when Jesus is going through his earthly ministry then, one of the, the remarkable things is that as he interacts with people, as he goes to different sinners and touches them, this is God in the flesh touching men. They don't fall dead before him. Instead, he brings healing. And in that, we see the nature of our God, that he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But he was abounding in steadfast love from eternity. As we said earlier, it's not as just though, well, now that Christ's here, I'm going to be nice to everybody. And we see that even in our next verses, because it's a great segue. You talk about bespeaking righteous or setting apart, making holy. What he asks Moses to do next is to consecrate the people. So we're going to read with verses, well, 9b through 15. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down to the mountain, or from the mountain, pardon me, to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman." So this is the text so far. It obviously continues, but just taking that little chunk, yeah, so he consecrates them. He sets them apart. To be holy is merely to be set aside for a, a purpose that's not vulgar or common, right? So he sets these people apart. But he does it in these really incarnational ways. He's washing them in garments. And, you know, we think of God bespeaking us righteous. It, it, God can just say it, and it happens. And yet... Is this just another example of him condescending to us so that coming down to us so that we can appreciate, you know, what's going on in a different way? Like the visuals you talked about earlier with the cloud. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, there's a there's this sense here where heaven is meeting earth. And and as heaven meets earth, this is really going to be the big question that the rest of the book of Exodus is building towards. And it's going to end with this way. I mean, the book of Exodus kind of does end with a question mark. And the question is, now that the glory of the Lord is manifest among the people, particularly it's, man it's been manifested to Moses, how is it that this glory, this, this manifestation of the Lord's appearing is going to be given or mediated to the people? How is how are his saving benefits going to be delivered to them? And really the answer is the book of Leviticus. He institutes the, the priesthood and the whole sacrificial so that he can atone for their sins, right? That's why we have like, the day of atonement in Leviticus chapter 16. 
So there are some, at least in our ears, I know they strike me as somewhat peculiar. You have the the uh, thing where if, if you go too close to the mountain, that person is to be stoned or or shot with an arrow, right? Or to not go near a woman. This reminds me of when the, the people of Israel were carrying the Ark of the Covenant. I believe it's in Second Samuel chapter 5. And while they're carrying the Ark of the Covenant, if they had recovered it from the, the Philistine, the, the, the oxen that are, it's on, one of the oxen slips and, and the Ark starts to fall. And there's this man named Uzzah who reaches out and he touches the Ark of the Covenant and he dies instantaneously. I, I preached a, a sermon one time on, on the holiness of God. This is back when I was on, on vicarage. And I, I said, I have yet to see the headline in a, uh, like the Lutheran witness, Alter Guild Lady Dies for Touching the Body of Christ, <laughs> which is really actually a remarkable thing. Right, uh, right. It, 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 that's something that should stu- stun us, that instead of, of God, God punishing us with death for coming into his presence, he, he gathers us into his presence so that our sin might die. And he touches us. He he actually at the the communion rail. We we are given the body and blood of Jesus for our healing, for our good, that we would be made whole. So God, who is holy and distinct from us, doesn't use his holiness to say, "Well, you are mere mortal, and I'm going to keep a hand's distance from you." Instead, he gets down into the messiness of of this life. <laughs> The, some of the verses that we read earlier from chapter 2 and, and Exodus 3 as well remind us of this, where he says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people, and what am I going to do about it? Well, I'm not going to stand back and say, they're, they're there, it's okay, It'll, things will get better. Instead, I'm going to come down and show you that I am your God by fighting for you, by redeeming you. Now, the, it's only by the Lord's mercy and grace that he doesn't smite us when we come into his presence, and that's the point I think you're making. Um, but there are some proper ways that we can prepare ourselves to encounter the Lord. I mean, that's what's going on here. They're doing it by God's command. These things aren't just—I mean, they are outward things, but they're done by God's command so that we can prepare, at the very least, our hearts and minds to come before him. That's what's going on for them. So does this inform us at all about the way perhaps we approach the Lord's Supper? I mean, can we be too casual about it? Can Should we do certain things, not because it's going to guarantee the grace, but because it just prepares us to be in the right spirit to receive it? Does that, does that make sense at all? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, right? And so if, if we see the treasure of the gospel given to us in the sacrament of the altar— then there is this certain idea we want we want our heart to to be in the right place and to to be well prepared to receive now luther reminds us in the catechism that fasting and bodily preparation are, are those are certainly fine outward things to do but that person is truly worthy and well prepared who has faith in these words given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins so at the very least, we, 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 should, we ought to believe those words, <laughs> hear those words and believe it. We can sometimes, maybe it's because we have 
some aversion to something like fasting and bodily preparation. We might shy away from it or just say, oh, see, Luther says in the small catechism that, th that those aren't necessary, so we don't have to do them. But, but he actually says those are fine things to because the things that we do with our body helps our minds. An example of this, the easy ex example of this uh, is parents teaching their children to pray. So I have, I have eight children. So when I'm teaching my kids to pray, I'm doing the three things. I teach them three things that I was taught. I teach them to fold their hands, close their eyes, and bow their heads. And I do that because I don't want them fidgeting with something or like, you know, swatting the sibling next to them. I want them to, to close their eyes so they're not distracted by the cute little baby sitting at the end of the table. And they're, they're bowing their head because that is a sign of humility. That is, we are humbling ourselves before the Lord. It, it, it's, a, it's a prayer, it's a posture for prayer that is certainly not necessary, but it's beneficial because... What we do, what we, how we conduct ourselves with our body, that that helps our mind get in the right place. So that's that, that's just one thing with the connection between why bodily preparation or something like fasting prior to the Lord's Supper is beneficial. Fasting can certainly be abuse, and Jesus talks about how it may be abused. But he also tells the disciples, "When you fast, right. <laughs> and, uh, therefore, there's there's a good example to be followed." Well, in Luther's context, which we have to remember, was he lived in a time when the church was imposing and burdening people's consciences with these outward practices. You must do them. And then he says, yeah, listen, you don't have to do them. They're good to do, but you don't have to do them. I think in this day and age, we have to be very careful because the context that we live is just the opposite. Now it's more of it doesn't matter, you know, it, we can do anything, we can we can treat the sacrament in any way we want, and, and so people don't feel the consciences being burdened, which I don't want them to, as you point out, but at the same time, you know, there's, pietism is bad, but being pious is not bad, it's right. good, yeah, yeah, it's tough. Yeah. I'm going to in introduce just a few more verses as we, as we continue, this is going to be verses 16 through 20. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and then Moses went up. There's more, actually four verses more, but we're going to leave them for just a few minutes. So we see here, the third day has come. They've done all the preparations. The day is here. Thunders and lightnings, thick cloud, you know, and the trumpet blast. I have a one, I have a curious question about that. Is someone blowing a trumpet, or is this a trumpet blast coming from from heaven or from God? 
Well, that's a great question that had not occurred to me. That's a marvelous question. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I, so I will say I do have like a note in this in my notes that says the Israelites did not produce the trumpet sound. Mm. And I have a note in another resource that said, well, of course, the Israelites produced the trumpet sound. <laughs> yeah. So, so perhaps it's unknowable. So apologies for the unfair question. But it, yeah, I don't know. It just makes you wonder because when we think about Christ's return, we have that same image in languages. Right. This will, I, mean, I think this whole book of the covenant gets even in some ways stranger when you get to chapter 24 and you have Moses and Abihu and the, the 70 elders of Israel gathered up on the mountain and they were told they eat with God. So you have this picture of the holy other who, as we said before, is separate and distinct from the people. And he's He's holy because he is the creator of all things, right? Because he is eternally the Lord. The people are, are unholy for, for two reasons. That, now, I'm, I'm not saying that the, the Lord hasn't called them as a holy nation, but there's something that's different about the, the people. The, the two things that make the people different are, first, they're created by God. That makes them separate, distinct from him. the second thing that makes them unholy is their sin right and so here is the lord showing his holy otherness and yet in his graciousness gathering sinners into his presence and and what is he going to do when he gathers these people there he's going to through the giving of the law show them how he has ordered their lives. He, he wants them to live in accord with the order that he established at creation. When they live in accord with that order he established, things will go well. So we see that in, in the, like the first commandment with a promise, the fourth commandment, honor your father and your mother that it may go well with you, long with you in the land. Things go better when you hear the, the commandments of the Lord, when you guard them. Well, we only have a few minutes left in the program, so I want to make sure that we get the last verses at least out there in the ether. This is going to be verses 21 through the end of the chapter, verse 25. Here we go. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord, to look, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down, come up, and bring Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. So the very next thing that happens, dear listeners, is that he then gives the Ten Commandments. But in this text, brother, you know, we've talked about how God, out of his mercy and grace, he is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. We encounter him, say, in the Lord's Supper and in other ways, even in this text, and we are not consumed. Yet he still sets some limits. He still says, you know, don't let the people come up to the mountain. Don't let them even touch it. If an animal touches it off with its head, you know? So, so God certainly has these limits. And how do we reconcile that with the idea that God is, you know, loving and full of abundant and steadfast mercy? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. Well, 
as we've said already a few times, the Lord is the holy other. And there is still this, this reality that we, we are sinners and he is sinless. And God himself will have nothing to do with sin. What I, let me explain what I mean by that. And for confirmation questioning every year, I have one question that I ask that, that usually trips the confirmands up. And the question is, do you have to be perfect to go to heaven? And they always want to say no. And I know exactly why they, they want to say no, because they know they're not perfect. They know they're sinners. And, and so they're surprised when I say, well, the answer is yes. <laughs> yes, you have to be perfect in order to go to heaven. Now, the next question that is on that, that confirmation questioning is, if you're not perfect, <laughs> if you're a sinner, then how is it that you will go to heaven? And the answer is Christ. See, Christ, Christ by his death, he justifies me. Right. That's a good one. Uh, I'm going to have to incorporate that into my routine <laughs> because, right, we're, we, we have access to heaven, have access to God in general because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, not our own. Right. But you still have to have that. Exactly. 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 And so for the one who doesn't have it, then if we can, we want to just think about what will happen like on the last day. Well, they will be cast out into the eternal fire. Right. So there is a separation that is to happen between the sheep and the goats or or between the, the wheat and the weeds. The weeds will be gathered together and, and burned in an unquenchable fire. But the wheat will be gathered into the barn and in, into the eternal harvest of God. So um, what we see here as heaven is coming <laughs> down to earth, the Lord is reminding the people in some ways by coming down in this, this great way and manifesting his holiness visibly for them, that in order to gather into my presence, you need to be perfect. Now, where are you going to find that perfection? And the answer for us is in what the Lord has said and done for us in Christ. Well, I think that's a great place to end our program today. I know there's so much more we could cover, but this has been a great interview. I'd like to thank my guest, the Reverend James Stefanik, pastor of Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Marshall, Minnesota. And thank you, too, for listening to Thy Strong Word. I've been your host, Pastor Phil Boo. Father, keep us in Thy Strong Word. <laughs>